Every human being is thirsty. Some actually quench their thirst and others spend their lives dying of thirst and they don't even know it. In his book, The Silver Chair, which is a part of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis describes the encounter that Jill, this little girl, has with Aslan, that great powerful lion, the encounter that she has when she first arrives in that magical place called Narnia. Soon after her arrival in Narnia, Jill's friend Scrub falls off of a cliff and as she watches him fall away, she discovers Aslan, the powerful lion, standing right next to her. And then Aslan disappears into the thick forest and Jill suddenly realizes how desperately thirsty she is. We'll pick up the story right now in chapter 2. Without a glance at Jill, the lion rose to its feet and gave one last blow. Then, as if satisfied with its work, it turned and stalked slowly away back into the forest. It must be a dream. It must. It must, said Jill to herself. I'll wake up in a moment. But it wasn't. And she didn't. I do wish we'd never come to this dreadful place, said Jill. I don't believe Scrub knew any more about it than I do. Or if he did, he had no business to bring me here without warning me what it was like. It's not my fault he fell over that cliff. If he left me alone, we should both be all right. Then she remembered again the scream that Scrub had given when he fell and burst into tears. Crying is all right in its way while it lasts. But you have to stop sooner or later, and then you still have to decide what to do. When Jill stopped, she found she was dreadfully thirsty. She had been lying face downward, and now she sat up. The birds had ceased singing, and there was perfect silence, except for one small persistent sound, which seemed to come from a good distance away. She listened carefully and felt almost sure it was the sound of running water. Jill got up and looked around her very carefully. There was no sign of the lion, but there were so many trees about that it might easily be quite close without her seeing it. For all she knew, there might be several lions. But her thirst was very bad now, and she plucked up her courage to go and look for that running water. She went on tiptoes, stealing cautiously from tree to tree, stopping to peer round her at every step. The wood was so still that it was not difficult to decide where the sound was coming from. It grew clearer every moment, and sooner than expected, she came to an open glade and saw the stream, bright as glass, running across the turf a stone's throw away from her. But although the sight of the water made her feel ten times thirstier than before, she didn't rush forward and drink. She stood as still as if she had been turned into stone with her mouth wide open. And she had a very good reason. Just on this side of the stream lay the lion. It lay with its head raised and its two forepaws out in front of it like the lions in Trafalgar Square. She knew at once that it had seen her, for its eyes looked straight into hers for a moment and then turned away as if it knew her quite well and didn't think much of her. If I run away, it'll be after me in a moment, thought Jill, and if I go on, I shall run straight into its mouth. Anyway, she couldn't have moved if she had tried, and she couldn't take her eyes off it. How long this lasted, she could not be sure. It seemed like hours. 
And the thirst became so bad that she almost felt that she would not mind being eaten by the lion if only she could be sure of getting a mouthful of water first. If you're thirsty, you may drink. They were the first words she had heard since Scrub had spoken to her on the edge of the cliff. For a second, she stared here and there, wondering who had spoken. Then the voice said again, If you are thirsty, come and drink. And of course, she remembered what Scrub had said about animals talking in that other world and realized that it was the lion speaking. Anyway, she had seen its lips move this time, and the voice was not like a man's. It was deeper, wilder, and stronger, a sort of heavy golden voice. It did not make her any less frightened than she had been before, but it made her frightened in a rather different way. Are you not thirsty? said the lion. I'm dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step near. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. There is no other stream to drink from to find satisfaction in this life. Sure, there are streams that you and I go to in order to quench the thirst of our souls, but we know they don't satisfy us because they can't. Our big idea today is this. Taste and see that the Lord is good or die of thirst. Now, where do I get that idea? I get that idea from verses 8 through 9, which speaks of rain falling on land. So look at Hebrews chapter 6 at verse 8. Hear the word of the Lord. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Now the land that's being described here by the preacher of Hebrews is a picture of the human heart. Some hearts drink in the rain of the gospel and it produces a crop. And the land that does not receive that gospel rain only bears thorns and thistles. So this is a picture of human hearts and how they receive Jesus. Some people are satisfied with Jesus. They taste and they see that the Lord is good and that he's merciful and gracious and kind to sinners like us. 
So they taste and they see that, yes, God is good. Jesus is good. And so Jesus becomes their treasure, their delight, their joy. But not so with unbelievers. Unbelievers don't soak up the rain of the gospel. And they actually die of thirst. And they will die of thirst for all of eternity. And that's who the people are who fall away in this passage. Look at verses 4 through 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now, many people have done much harm to others by their interpretation of the passage that's before us today. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to shoot down one of those interpretations and then I'm going to give you my interpretation, which, by the way, is the correct interpretation. Now, in my study of this passage, I came to the conclusion that as far as I've read, I'm the only one who believes this, what I'm going to present to you today. So, you're more than welcome to join Team Right, but if you have another interpretation, I'm okay with that, okay? But I am going to shoot down one of these interpretations. So, if you want to know the various interpretations out there, we don't have time to cover them in the Uh, sermon today, consult study Bibles, consult commentaries, and you can figure out the different interpretations. I'm just going to shoot one of those interpretations down and then give you what I think the preacher of Hebrews is saying today about how it's impossible to restore people to repentance once they have fallen away. So many people have come to this passage and brought much harm to other Christians by telling them that a Christian can lose their salvation. But that's not what this verse means. You cannot lose your salvation. If you could lose your salvation, you would. That's how sinful you are. If I could lose my salvation, I would. This passage is not saying that a Christian can quote-unquote lose their salvation. Once you are born again, and this is the good news of the gospel, this is why the gospel is good news and not so-so news, the good news of the gospel is that once you are born again, once you are united by faith to Jesus Christ, that union cannot be undone. Now, there's ebb and flow in your relationship with God. Your communion, there's ebb and flow in that. There's never ebb and flow in your union with God that is secured by Jesus, secured by the Holy Spirit. But your communion with God, how you relate to God on a day-to-day and week-to-week basis, there's ebb and flow and fluctuation with that. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that. There's days you're like, Jesus is everything. And there's days where you're like, I want sin so bad. So there's ebb and flow in our communion with God, but there's never ebb and flow with our union with Christ. Once you are born again and united by faith to Jesus, that union cannot be undone. The theological phrase for this is the perseverance of the saints. 
True believers will endure to the end. That's what we believe here at Grace. Once you are in union with Christ, that union cannot be undone. It cannot be broken. And our statement of faith here at Grace, which is a great commentary on this passage, actually, our statement of faith expresses this truth. Under the section titled Regeneration, this is what we believe at Grace. To be a member here, you have to affirm this. We believe that those who, by God's free grace, are regenerated by the Holy Spirit or made alive out of the deadness of their sins become new creatures and thus are enabled to repent and forsake sin and trust Jesus Christ our Savior and are delivered from condemnation and receive eternal life. Those who are thus regenerated will be kept by God's power and will persevere as Christians until the end of their lives and that only those who persevere until the end have truly been born again. That's actually a great explanation of the passage that we're looking at today. Those who are regenerated, they're made alive. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. They're made alive by the Holy Spirit when the gospel is preached They're thus enabled to believe and trust in Jesus and then repent and turn from their sins. Those people will persevere to the end. And those who don't persevere prove that they were never really born again. So when the preacher of Hebrews says that when someone falls away, they cannot be restored to repentance, he's not talking about Christians here. He's not speaking about disciples, believers. He's talking about unbelievers when he speaks of people falling away. He's talking about people who are a part of the church community. They're a part of the covenant community, the people of God, who think they're born again, but they're not really born again. That's who the preacher is talking about here. People who are a part of the church, part of the covenant community, but they're not really in union with Christ. They're part of the visible church, which we can all see with our eyes because we're here today, but they're not part of the invisible church, which only God can see. So in verses 4 through 5, the preacher describes these people and how they have participated in the very ordinary means of grace in the church, but they're not born again. They receive the reign of the gospel, but it doesn't soak in. They're like many in that first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, under the leadership of Moses, who heard the gospel. But as Hebrews 4.2 says, they did not believe they were not united to Jesus, their Redeemer, by faith. In fact, the way he describes the Hebrews here could even be said of that first generation of Israelites because that's what he's talked about in chapters 3 and 4. So he probably has those Israelites in mind as he describes these people who fall away. Those Israelites are in the background of what he says in chapter 6 about the people that fall away. And he describes these people first as people, uh, who have, the ones who fall away, who have once been enlightened, meaning those who have heard the gospel and maybe even responded with a profession of faith that wasn't real. 
Um, they just went through the motions. They, they, they did the proverbial raise a hand and, and walked down an aisle and, and they said the sinner's prayer and they got baptized and, and became a member of the church and participated in Lord's Supper and, and they served others and they were in small groups, but they were not truly regenerate, not truly born again. And then he describes these people as those who have tasted the heavenly gift, those who have tasted Jesus. He's the heavenly gift. They've, they've tasted the gospel. Puritan John Owen says in his commentary that they tasted the gospel, but they didn't digest it, and it brought them no nourishment. They just tried it. Owen says they, they tasted the gospel, and then they spit it out. They tasted Jesus, and then they spit him out. It was like a wine tasting for them. Just give me a taste. And then we spit it out. But then the preacher describes these people who fall away as those who have shared in the Holy Spirit, meaning they've seen the Spirit of God at work in the church community. They've seen the Spirit working in, in various ways through various gifts. They've shared or fellowshiped in the Holy Spirit in the church community, but they're not born again. And then lastly, the preacher describes them as those who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Meaning, those who have heard the word of God preached. They've heard the gospel preached week in and week out. They've seen the resurrection power of Jesus at work as he's transforming the lives of sinners. They've observed the power of God at work through the preaching of the word of God and the preaching of the gospel. And they've seen firsthand the transformative power of the gospel in people's lives but they're still not believers. They're still not in union with Christ. They tasted the goodness of the word and they weren't satisfied and they spit it out. John Calvin describes these people in his commentary on Hebrews. He says that they taste some of God's grace. The way that seed falls on a ground in Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. And Calvin says that God in his grace and goodness lets these unbelievers even get a little taste of how good he is. He says, but I cannot admit that all this is any reason why he should not grant the reprobate, the unbeliever, also some taste of his grace. Why he should not irradiate their minds with some sparks of light. Why he should not give them some perception of his goodness and in some sort engrave his word on their hearts. Otherwise, if God wasn't showing an unbeliever these things about himself, where would be the temporal faith mentioned in Mark 4, 17, in the parable of the sower? There is, therefore, some knowledge even in the reprobate, which afterwards vanishes away, either because it did not strike roots sufficiently deep or because it withers being choked up. And so, in a nutshell, these people who fall away are unbelievers who had the seed of the gospel fall on the soil of their hearts but just like Jesus says in Mark 4, it didn't take root. They are people who are a part of the covenant community, part of the church. They came to church on Sundays. They're in small groups. They participate in the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. They hear the gospel preached week after week, but they're not truly born again because they didn't drink in the rain of the gospel. The land of their hearts did not receive that gospel rain. And therefore, they're not true Christians, true believers. And it is these people, these unbelievers, who once they fall away, 
the preacher of Hebrews says, it's impossible for them to be restored to repentance. It's impossible to restore them. Look at verse 6. And then, having ha- and then have fallen away, it's impossible, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Now apparently there was some confusion regarding what happens to unbelievers after death. The Hebrews had heard that Jesus is merciful, that he's so gracious to sinners like us, that he loves us, he's so kind to sinners like us. But they were thinking, well, maybe this is how Jesus relates to unbelievers after they die. So they needed a refresher on eternal judgment. And eternal judgment is one of the six things that we looked at last week, these basics of the gospel. So the preacher of Hebrews is going over that again. Apparently, the Hebrews needed to be reminded that God's mercy is not available to unbelievers after death. There's no hope of God's mercy for an unbeliever once they die. Yes, God is merciful to us. He's so merciful. But there's no mercy for a sinner in hell. The Hebrews seem to have zeroed in on God's mercy and they began entertaining the idea that because Jesus is so merciful and kind and gracious and loving to sinners like us, that perhaps... He'll be merciful to those who die and go to hell. Now, you may think this is strange that Christians would be tempted to believe that mercy is available for unbelievers after they die. But it should not be strange to us because this idea pops up in church history over and over again. In fact, even in the last few years, a man by the name of Rob Bell wrote a book called Love Wins, a book about heaven, hell, and the fate of every person who ever lived. And in this book, Rob Bell argued that eventually God's love would even win over people in hell and that they would eventually be reconciled to God. And many Christians bought this book and they believe it. So if you think it's strange that the Hebrews need to be reminded that there's no hope for an unbeliever after death, just remember that the church has had to deal with this very topic in recent years. So apparently, there was some confusion about the fate of unbelievers once they die, and that's why the preacher is rehearsing eternal judgment here. He mentioned eternal judgment in verse 2. This is one of the six things that he says, I want to move on from talking about this in my letter because I want to get to chapter 7 and tell you about Jesus and Melchizedek. But he's having to give them a refresher on eternal judgment, on what happens to an unbeliever once they die. And that's what I think he's doing here in this passage. But let's talk about the phrase, fall away because that's where everybody comes up with a different interpretation. What does it mean that these people have fallen away? Well, the Greek word that's used here is not the normal Greek word that's used for apostasy, where someone abandons the faith. The preacher uses a unique word that only occurs here in the New Testament, the word parapipto, and it literally means to fall aside, to slip aside, to deviate from the right path. And the words fall away are a participle in the Greek language. It's an aorist participle in the Greek language. So let me explain. I mean, it's just what you wanted on Sunday morning, right? Grammar 
and Greek grammar at that, but let me explain how the aorist participle works. The aorist participle points to something that happens at a point in time in the past. And so this falling away is a single, once-for-all accomplished act. And then the present participles that follow this aorist participle, they express the condition of what happens to these people after they fall away. So falling away happens once, and it is antecedent to the two participles that will follow the participles of crucifying once again and holding him up to contempt. That's what describes the people after they have fallen away. So these people fall away, a one-time act. And then, the preacher says, they begin to crucify Jesus again and hold him up to contempt. That's the order in which all of this occurs. First, they fall away, a one-time act. And after that, they crucify Jesus again and bring contempt upon him. And I'll unpack what those two participles mean in a moment. What the preacher is saying is that there are people in the church who deviate from what they hear. They deviate from the gospel. And when they die, they fall away ultimately into hell. Just like Scrub in the silver chair fell off the cliff. These people fall off. They fall away. They fall off the cliff into eternal judgment. These people, these unbelievers who fall away, They cannot be restored to repentance after they die. Now, let that sink in and stir your heart for your friends and neighbors and coworkers and family members who do not know Jesus. Unbelievers cannot. It is impossible for them to be restored to repentance when they fall away into hell when they die. It's impossible for unbelievers to repent and die. And that's the preacher's point here. But as long as an unbeliever is alive, they can repent, right? As the gospel is preached, the Holy Spirit can regenerate any unbeliever that he wants to. How do you think you got saved? The Spirit of God can regenerate any human being as long as they are breathing, as long as they are alive. But once they die, once they fall away into hell, into everlasting condemnation and judgment, then they cannot repent. And as we'll see in a moment, they won't want to repent. Do you remember what the preacher mentioned back in verse 2? Before he started talking about all of this, he mentioned eternal judgment. Now, what made the preacher of Hebrews bring up the fact that unbelievers cannot repent once they die? It's the fact that he just mentioned eternal judgment in verse 2. So, do you see the connection there? This is why he brings this up. This is why he's rehearsing this, because they need to be taught this truth again. Even though he desperately wants to get to chapter 7 and talk about Jesus and Melchizedek, he has to give them a rehearsal of eternal judgment. 
He mentioned eternal judgment as one of the elementary truths that the Hebrews should move on from for a moment in this letter. And so this controversial verse that has a lot of different interpretations is actually not a verse about Christians losing their salvation. Rather, it's about unbelievers who have died and are in hell and are experiencing eternal judgment. That's what falling away means, in my opinion. The people in this verse who have fallen away are unbelievers who were a part of the church community. But they weren't really born again. And when they died, they fell away from the gospel that was right before their eyes while they were living. It's also worth noting here, too, the preacher's use of the personal pronouns here for how he describes believers and how he describes unbelievers. The preacher and the Hebrews that he's writing to are described with these pronouns. In chapter 5, verse 11, we. In chapter 6, verse 1, us. In chapter 6, verse 3, we. In chapter 6, verse 9, we, your, we. But then unbelievers are described in this section with these pronouns. Chapter 6, verse 4, those. Chapter 6, verse 6, them, they, their. And so there's this clear distinction here with his use of the personal pronouns between the preacher and the Hebrews, who are believers, and these people who fall away, who are unbelievers. The unbelievers fall away from the gospel, and so falling away equals unbelief. It's not believing the gospel. And any person that is a part of the church community who is not truly born again, when they die, they will have fallen away from the gospel for good. And that's exactly what the preacher said back in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. He said, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Falling away equals unbelief. Having an evil, unbelieving heart. And once you fall away into hell, you cannot repent. It's impossible. Of course, while any person is alive, They have a chance to respond to the gospel. Any unbeliever, until they breathe their last breath, has a chance to trust in Christ. As long as you are alive, you can hear the gospel call. And that's why the preacher has quoted Psalm 95 three times in his letter, where he repeated these words, Today! If you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice. In other words, are you alive? Is your blood pumping? Are you breathing? Do you have ears to hear? Today, if you hear his voice, don't turn away from him. You can only hear the gospel call while you are alive. You can only hear God's merciful voice to you saying, I love you and I'll forgive you of your sins You can only hear that while you're alive. And so what the preacher of Hebrews is saying here when he says it's impossible if they have fallen away to restore them again to repentance is that it is impossible for an unbeliever to repent after they are dead. Once an unbeliever dies, there is no second chance. It's impossible for them to repent. And the Hebrews needed a little refresher on this. So let me ask you a question, and this is what helped me to come to my interpretation of this passage. When and where is it impossible to repent? When is the only time 
a human being cannot repent? And where is the place that that human being is in where they cannot repent? The answer is in hell. It's eternal judgment. It's the only time and place that an unbeliever cannot be restored to repentance. And the Greek word that the preacher uses here for restore means to make new, to produce something new. It's the Greek word uh, anakinizo. It comes from the the root word uh, kainos, which means to be made new in nature. So what he's saying is that unbelievers in hell cannot be made new in their nature. They cannot be born again. They cannot experience regeneration. They cannot become a new creature in Christ. And so they will die of thirst forever. They will never experience the satisfaction. They'll never experience the living water that Jesus offers to sinners And so to all the people here in the church today, the preacher of Hebrews says this to us, taste and see that the Lord is good or die of thirst. Charles Ross, a minister in the Free Church of Scotland in the 1800s said, Jesus is the supreme good. To reject him, therefore, is the crowning evil. If you don't find satisfaction with all that God is for you in Jesus, you'll die of thirst eternally. If you don't receive gospel rain and drink it in, you'll die of thirst forever to reject the living water that is offered to you in the gospel right now is to reject it forever. Look at verse 6. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Unbelievers who are part of the covenant community cannot be restored to repentance once they die because they are crucifying Jesus again and holding him up to contempt. What does that mean? The words crucifying and holding here are participles in Greek, and I think they should be translated as temporal participles, which answer the question, when? And here's how Greek participles work. It's said that if you can master the participles of Greek, then you can master the Greek language. They're very hard to figure out. So this is my attempt at this. I think these participles here should be translated as temporal participles, which answer the question, when? When is this crucifying happening? When is this holding up to contempt happening? So you could translate verse 6 this way. And then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance when or while they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and when or while they're holding him up to contempt. So when are these unbelievers crucifying Jesus again to their own harm? And when are these unbelievers holding Jesus up to contempt? The answer is in hell as they refuse to repent. Such people are crucifying the Son of God all over again, meaning they are rejecting him as deliberately as his executioners did at Calvary. To crucify the Son of God all over again means they're rejecting Jesus. 
the way unbelievers rejected him when he was hanging on the cross. And they are subjecting Jesus to public disgrace, holding him up to contempt just like they did at his crucifixion. And they're openly putting themselves in the position of his enemies just like at his crucifixion. In other words, the way Jesus was publicly shamed and humiliated by his enemies as he hung on the cross, that's what unbelievers will do in hell for all of eternity. They will mock Jesus, they will scorn him, they will swear at him, and they will be so hard-hearted by sin that they will refuse to repent even though they're experiencing all the very real torments of hell. That's how sinful human beings are, that sinners in hell will be so hard-hearted they don't want to repent. That even if Jesus came to them in love and mercy and said, I love you, I lived and died for you, they would say, no, thank you, get out of my face. For all of eternity, they will be cursing Jesus, full of hatred, full of vitriol, spewing forth nasty comments about Jesus. For all of eternity, unbelievers will spit and spew forth the same kind of comments that Jesus heard as he hung on the cross. They will refuse to believe, even in hell, just as they refused to believe when they were sitting in church and hearing about Jesus dying for them week after week. They could have tasted and seen that the Lord is good and he's merciful and gracious and loving to sinners. But they refused. They tasted the gospel. They tasted Jesus. But they spit him out. Ray Ortland says, Hell is for people who could have enjoyed the love of God but held back. They tasted the goodness of the gospel. They spit it out. God was gracious to them in letting them taste the goodness of his son. They could have enjoyed Jesus, but they spit him out. They held back. They were just like those Israelites that came out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. They heard the gospel, but they were not united to Christ by faith. They sat in church and heard the gospel week after week after week, but it fell on hard hearts, on hard ground, as Jesus says in the parable of the sower in Mark 4, and as the preacher alludes to here in verses 7 through 8. Look at verses 7 through 8. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. The preacher is using agricultural imagery here to describe the human heart and how it responds to God's word, how it responds to the gospel. And when true believers hear the gospel, They receive it, they drink it in, and they bring forth a crop that is useful to others. And we'll talk more about that next week. And that's really what this passage is about. 
It's not about debating what does it mean it's impossible to restore someone to repentance. What the preacher is trying to do here, and we'll see it next week, is he's trying to encourage them to keep letting the gospel land on their hearts so it produces a crop that's useful for other people in the church community to keep pressing on and serving others. That's what he wants to tell them. But because we have time limits here, I've had to chop this section up like a sandwich, and so you're just getting part of it today. But the whole point of this passage is to encourage the Hebrews to keep pressing on. But we'll get to that next week, Lord willing. But notice what he says about the hearts of unbelievers here. They hear the gospel, but it does not bring forth a crop. It only brings forth thorns and thistles. They hear the gospel, but it falls on hard ground. Only thorns and thistles come up, and they are near to being cursed forever unless they repent. And if they don't repent, then what happens? The preacher says in verse 8 that their end is to be burned. Now, where does this burning take place? What's he talking about here when he mentions burning. Any clues? Eternal judgment, burning. He's talking about hell. He's talking about eternal judgment. The end of the unbeliever that doesn't drink in the gospel rain and be satisfied with Jesus, their end is to be burned forever in hell. So see the connection here. Make the connection between verse 2 when he says eternal judgment and verse 8 and its end is to be burned. He's expanding on verse 2 here. Keep the context in mind. We can't just approach this passage and read it. Keep the whole context in mind. He just mentioned eternal judgment in verse 2. So he's expanding on that in verses 4 through 8. Expanding on the eternal judgment that he brought up in verse 2. He's talking about how unbelievers cannot repent once they die because they will experience eternal judgment from God and their end is to be burned in hell for all of eternity. And this happens because they refuse to drink and be satisfied with the living water that God offers to them in the gospel, which is his son. They refuse to drink in the good news that Jesus lived the life that we could never live because we're sinners. God demands perfection of every single one of us and the law is his standard and he says measure up, be perfect and none of us can. But Jesus did. He lived a life that none of us could live and he died the death that we all deserve because we don't measure up to God's standard because we're sinners. And so these unbelievers hear that and they're not interested. Listen, God loves you. God is merciful to you, he's gracious to you, kind to you. His kindness is meant to bring you to what? Repentance. And so let's make it personal now. Taste and see that the Lord is good or die of thirst. Do you remember how thirsty Jill was in the silver chair in Narnia? She met Aslan after first arriving in Narnia. Let's pick up, we're going to back up and pick up the story. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I do come, said Jill? I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing us, she had, noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. 
It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I daren't come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his stern face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down, and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Before she tasted it, she had been intending to make a dash away from the lion the moment she had finished. Now she realized that this would be, on the whole, the most dangerous thing of all. She got up and stood there with her lips still wet from drinking. Listen, Grace, there is no other stream. In the gospel, Jesus invites you to come and drink, and he offers you the coldest, most refreshing, soul-satisfying water. Don't run away from him. Run to him and believe and trust in the good news and turn from your sin and repent from finding joy and satisfaction in other things and repent from living your own way and trust that Jesus lived and died and was raised to bring you back to God, the fountain of living water. So come and drink today. There's no other stream He is the most refreshing water you will ever taste. He will quench your thirst at once. Don't dash away from him. It will be the most dangerous thing you could ever do. If you dash away from him, you will die of thirst, both in this life and for all of eternity. On the whole, that's the most dangerous thing of all, to turn away from Jesus. Don't turn away. Don't run from him. Run to him, the most refreshing water you will ever taste. And if you don't believe me, then take it from Jesus himself. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're thirsty today, you may drink. If you're thirsty today, come and drink. And in the words of Aslan, that powerful lion, are you not thirsty? Are you not thirsty today? Are you dying of thirst today? Then come and drink and be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, thank you that though you are holy and mighty and powerful and you're pictured in Aslan the lion there, in spite of that, who you are and your majesty, you invite sinners into your presence. You invite us to come and drink and it's the most dangerous thing if we try to run away. Oh God, draw us by your spirit now to take another step nearer 
and to drink and to drink and to drink and be satisfied and to stand up with our lips still wet and to praise your son, the living water who quenches and satisfies sinners like us. As we prepare to eat the Lord's Supper, Father, we confess our sins that we are sinners and we ask you to forgive us and we look to your son by faith now trusting that he will through the power of the Holy Spirit give us grace and strengthen us as we eat and drink of this meal with you. In Jesus' name, amen.